What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 56 of Inking Out Loud. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. Drew, what's good, man? How's it going, everybody? And today, we're finally diving into the first of our patron-suggested novels, The Last Wish by Andrei Sapkowski, also known as the first novel in his world-famous series, The Witcher. You may have heard of it, particularly recently. <laughs> so... I want to start off right away by asking a question, and it's a very simple, straightforward question. You probably expected something along these lines, Drew, but what the hell did we just read? How do we discard, <laughs> like, start a discussion about this one? Is there anywhere in particular you want to start? Because I have no idea how to tackle this one. Uh, it's funny, because I was expecting you to ask me to do a synopsis of this, and when I was thinking about how I would do a synopsis, I kind of came to the conclusion that I was going to tell you I don't really know how to synopsize this book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, that was, I was cognizant of that when I was reading the book. I was like, hmm, maybe I'll ask Drew for... Uh, but then again, I realized, oh, but this is... We're doing the entirety of the book in one. It's not like we're going to have to pick up after this with the rest of this book. So I figured, mm -hmm. eh, it's probably not worth just asking. We'll just discuss it on the episode. And as I read on and forward, <laughs> it became very clear that having asked you to do that in the first place would have been very cruel. Yeah, and so <laughs> what what I was going to say is we have to start with what this book is. And what this book is is not a novel. Uh, <laughs> it is, like, I would describe this as not quite a short story collection um, because there is this backbone narrative, these interludes between the short stories that builds to create a cohesive whole um it's a really strangely structured book strangely structured book that's a that's a good way to put it that's putting it mildly actually i would argue um you know what to, to start off with i well to start off with i have already started clearly but i also want to say that the, the vast majority of my points for this episode are going to be style based we don't have a whole lot of characters that we get enough information about to really discuss in depth <laughs> obviously besides Geralt and perhaps arguably a few others I do have some yep. points about Geralt that I want to discuss later or, or, or maybe we do that first because like I said 95% of my points here are all about style and I feel like it might be awkward to just spend an hour and change talking <laughs> about style and then just wrap up with a five minute Geralt conversation like how do you want to approach sure. this let's kick off with the you know eponymous witcher yes okay yeah no all right so to begin with i want to say that i'm glad that one of Geralt's greatest talents has clearly been around since the very beginning um talking about Geralt of rivia the white wolf butcher of bladikin uh, bladikin blavikin pardon me yada 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 yeah. all of his titles various as they come most fans are quick to praise his strength like his martial sense his perceptive instinct about people and their motives nobody stops to appreciate how damn great of a detective this guy is like mm, yeah he's that's, smart yeah he like he's very perceptive like that's ultimately what the job of a witcher boils down to i think in the end mostly the vast majority of okay sure there are small parts of it that are dangerous ill-rewarding work to be a contract monster killer, but for every minute that Geralt spends actually fighting these beasts, as he's known to and famous for, he spends days, weeks, years, months, sometimes years, investigating disappearances, searching for clues, tracking targets. Like, first and foremost, Geralt of Rivia is an unparalleled detective. Sure, and and I think it's also worth pointing out that he's not just a researcher, he's also very good at thinking on his feet. 
as we see, you mm. know, with uh, Queen Kalanth and the, you know, the beast guy who comes in to collect his yes. promised reward. And, and in the moment, Geralt has to put together all the available pieces and come to a conclusion about what's really going on and find an answer, find a solution to it. Yep. And then there's a similar, you know, a similar situation in the Edge of the World story with the Sylvan and the Elves, where Geralt has to figure out in the moment what is going on, why are these events happening, you know, and and we see it, of course, even more with the the, the Jin at the end, and uh, it, I it took him a little while for that last how, one, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I appreciated though how it wasn't just all Geralt using his muscles. Definitely, definitely. I mean, we get to see, we do get to see a lot of Geralt using his muscles. In fact, it, it pretty much starts off with Geralt using his muscles. Um, and this is something I wanted to ask you. I probably should have asked you at the very top of the show here. Um, before we get too far away from it, I wanted to, to ask Drew: Have you played the games or read or watched the series? Um, so I have not played any of the games. Okay. Uh, I I have now seen the first two episodes. I watched them after finishing the book. Oh, okay. so oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like that's maybe a discussion for another time. But I oh, thought sure. it was interesting to as see. As, yeah, you know, I wanted I wanted to read the source material before seeing the adaptation, and okay. uh, and at some point I'll probably play uh, at least The Witcher Three because I've heard that's just a mm. masterpiece of a video game. Can confirm. But but going back to Geralt. And how I said I appreciated that he uses his brain as well as his muscles. I I want to point out, he also uses his smile quite a lot. I don't yeah. know if I've ever read a book where m more people smile more often <laughs> than this book. Constantly. Really? Constantly I had smiling. I actually noticed that. Although Geralt of Rivia is a very famous non-smiler for a large part. I don't know Oh why. my gosh. All the time yeah, he this, smiles. Yeah. I mean, and and not just him, but Renfrey and Queen Kalanth, and you know, it's insane. So I just I'm smiling right now, <laughs> listening to you talk about it. I just searched my ebook uh -oh. in the in the two hundred and ninety eight pages. I hear an ominous chime. One hundred and fifty two times the word smile is used. That's uh. It's a lot of smiling. That's a lot of smiling. <laughs> That's a lot it, of smiling. Oh my goodness. But but it's uh, it's almost as many raised eyebrows as there are in Sanderson's books. Whoop, oh, sorry, what what did I say? Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> well, but it's it's not just like a, a normal smile, but the, this wide variety of smiles and almost smiles and half smiles and smirks and yeah and of course that's just looking up the word smile. It's not looking up grin or smirk or you know. Okay. Things like that. Yeah. But I highlighted one particular line because it just, the self-awareness made me laugh. At least I assume this is self-awareness. And it's in the scene when, uh, in the short story with Queen Kalanth and Pavetta and, you know, the promise. And Geralt was amazed by her arsenal of smiles. Yes, her arsenal of smiles. <laughs> I wrote down those three words as well. I went, okay, that's kind of cool. I didn't actually stop to consider that that might have been... 
uh, a little self-aware, though, because I hadn't yet picked up on the mountain of different kinds of smiles that we've been seeing at this point. I actually, I, for me, it kind of flowed smoothly enough. I was about to ask you, to stop you and ask you if you thought perhaps that could have just been something that was a result of the translation from the original Polish into English, but then you, re then you brought up the fact that you hadn't even searched for smirks yeah. or anything like this, or, or, or like any other kind of grins. Um, so, damn, that, I kind of... No, no, there's there's definitely a lot of smiling. I hadn't picked up on it now, but going forward, if there's going to be more, I'm probably going to be noticing it. So I'm just going to say thanks for that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I just found it interesting how much body language is uh, left to the wayside except when it's on somebody's face. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I want to talk about the pros, too, because I thought there was like this... Um, wait, no, sorry. I'm starting off with my, my style discussion points. We're still on Geralt, though. We decided to do that first. What am I doing? Pardon me, everybody. This is what happens when you start pre-drinking before the podcast goes live. Um, let's see here. Oh, uh, also interesting are these moments where we get to see Geralt just beat some ass, though. Like, it's so, it's so well-balanced between the social and political intrigue and the fact that Geralt can pick up on what's happening in, in the environment around him in ways that others can't. But then he finds himself in places that he ought not to be and he gets under the skin of those who have iron hides and i particularly love this one moment where Geralt stopped and he thought to himself something along the lines of maybe gold's gonna help me get past this obstacle so he just whips out his purse and he beats a guy upside the yeah, head with yeah. it like priceless right or yeah, pr price the, the line that he says perhaps? after you know money <laughs> opens all doors that. or something like that i got a <laughs> yeah. crack out of that uh it was, it was pretty cool like Geralt, like he he he's a bad guy and i love it he's he's great but he just has this swaggering quality to him that is just so appealing to so many readers myself included it was, he's it was unapologetic cool. in a lot of ways but he wants to be apologetic you can tell that that's sort of a growing internal conflict uh that, I get that he sense. feels he feels a certain amount of guilt at the kind of person he is and the kind of life he leads and he wants to be different and we see that mostly come out through subtext in his scenes with Neneki when he's recuperating you know at the temple of Melatiel I, I assume you did uh I, audio uh I was going to and it turns out this book is not available on audible oh that's right so yeah. I actually had to read, I actually downloaded it on Google Play Books and just read the entirety of, of the book on my Samsung Galaxy S8. But yeah. I, for that well, one, I assume it's pronounced Melatella, maybe? I don't know. I, that's how I was saying it in my head canon. I, I kind of flip-flopped between Melatiel and Melatella, so yeah. I, I wasn't sure. I was curious if you did the audio. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, he, he can come off as a very one-dimensional character, but I think there is more to it, and it's very subtly written in. And that's something that, you know, if and when I read on in this series, I expect will be explored more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and regarding his unique abilities, something that sets him apart from other witchers, this is something I, I actually had a, as a question going into this book, not knowing it would be answered in this book, but left over from playing the third game, I have a lot of experience playing the third game, and I have watched the entirety of the the series on, on Netflix, oh. at least okay. as it currently stands. Um, but I, I had no idea, and I had always wondered, what makes Geralt so special among witchers? 
Like, because so far as I can tell, they're all incredibly badass, yet Geralt is, like, he's clearly the most famous, capable, and respected of them, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's the, at least the sense that we get, especially out of this book here. But as it turns out, we learn in Chapter 4 that Geralt took unusually well to the trial of the grasses and its toll on the physical body. And then he was subjected to more trials. Mm -hmm. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, like the first one in living memory to survive these. And I, I think we got uh, an answer in going back the uh, the Kalanth, uh short story. I believe it's uh, also in uh, chapter four. A question of price. Question of price. Yeah. Yeah, where we learn about this this promise of a surprise at home. Yeah, the law of surprise. How and how whenever somebody is involved with this sort of promise, they are always children of destiny. They're special. And so we find out, like, Geralt is a special witcher because he was promised to the witchers in this manner. Uh-huh. Which, so, which uh, as far as I know, playing through the third game several times was never revealed in, in, in at that point. Nor was it even referenced, so I don't know if it was even announced at, like, in that manner. Interesting. But I, I also want to make very clear, I have not played the first or second games, nor have I read the rest of this series. I have only had a lot of, you know, I've had a few hundred hours playing The Witcher 3, and I have watched the entirety of the Netflix, first season of the Netflix show a few times. That's that's all of my experience in this in this area. So I, for all I know, I could be talking out of my ass. This could be made <laughs> very clear in either one of the first two games, or, I, or it was made clear in the third game, and I just didn't get to that point or notice it. But I found it really cool to, to, to learn that from a book that was published in, what, 93, 94? It's, this is still a pretty old book. Uh, I, I At least these stories were published then. when it was uh, I did. I think it was 93 published. or 94. I don't remember the exact day, though. Let's let's see. Copyright. Last wish. Original text, 93. Yep. Oh, nailed it. Yeah. Sweet. I knew it was around there somewhere. Wow, yeah. I had no idea that was uh, What did you think? Just old. out of curiosity, if I'd asked you five minutes before. Oh, I would have guessed uh, early to mid two thousands. Of course, think. The, you know there's like seven or eight novels released already at this point. As the Witcher series has has enjoyed a long, prosperous career as a video game. So yeah, I guess out of context, you would yeah. have had at least some idea, right? Mm hmm. Mm. Man, every time I take a sip of this beer. So oh good. yeah. Oh good. That means yeah. I can't wait till we get to the uh, the final <laughs> draft. I have a, I have an interesting final draft choice for today too, and I'll just say that I'll just say interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, done... do you have any more about Geralt that you Nope, I was just going to ask you the same before we dove into our style mm -hmm. discussion, because that's going to be a long and difficult one, I think. Uh, well, so before we get in there, I want to talk about a couple more characters. I want to yeah, talk okay. about Renfrey. Yeah, I knew you would. And, and I want to talk about Yennefer. Uh, personally, I thought Renfrey was probably my favorite character in this book. Okay. Uh, just a heck of a lot of fun. Um yeah, I think she was in Chapter Three, right? The Lesser, lesser Evil. Evil. It was those the story yeah. that centered around Renfrey. Oddly, and, and and as you know now, having seen the first two episodes, and those who have seen the show, not a really big spoiler to say, the Lesser Evil in the entirety of the story, like the narrative concerning Renfrey, that is the basis for the the pilot of the Netflix show. Uh, yes. That's episode one. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, so I want to... Um, I think it's called The End's Beginning. Sorry, go ahead. 
uh, for some reason, when I read this, I was given the impression that Renfrey may not have actually died. Oh? I don't know why. Maybe it was just because of the... Um, like, the lore around these mutants and how... Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. How know, all that. And then the fact that Geralt wouldn't let Stregobor touch her. Um, and and it, this may also be colored by the fact that I liked Renfrey so much. I want her to still be alive so I could, like, get more of her in the future. Although, if... To be fair, you know, if these books maintain the structure, we could be traveling back in time in future installments and see more of her yeah but, true um but yeah i i thought she was a fascinating character just delightful to read very competent amusing uh fantastically underhanded like yeah uh, she was a good <laughs> match for uh for Geralt in that scene I think it was a good lesson story. for Geralt, a, a younger Geralt of Rivia, before he had officially earned the title of Butcher of Blaviken. Mm -hmm. um, as far as far as Renfrey goes, I do wish we had had more of Renfrey, or that we will get more of Renfrey. I hope that uh, I hope that becomes a thing. That'd be cool. But I don't know. I wasn't. I, I didn't. I enjoyed her character. I I wasn't as on board with her whole philosophy of. I mean, I can neither give up. Right? Like but yeah, she... so that's why I want to know more about her, and I hope that she's not done, because I feel like we didn't have a, a satisfying conclusion to her character. You know, what was her deal? Is she one of these mutants? Is this a real thing? Or, you know, that as Stregobor is saying, or is it BS as Geralt is saying, or is yeah. it somewhere in between? And I wish that and... she had made more room in, in, in deciding for herself rather than just assuming that, you know what, I have mm -hmm. to do this. I have to get my revenge on Stregobor. He's clearly the one behind every little every little dark happening happening in my entire life. I don't know. Like she she was definitely a sympathetic character, and I did wish that I, I honestly kind of wish that we had gotten to see her get some measure of revenge. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't I really her know completely. what to think about the plot of that story. I do like the characters. Uh, so that that's why I really hope that that plot isn't done with and that we get more answers in the future. I, I, I really did like her style, though. and I just, I'm talking physically, aesthetically, the way she was described and how mm -hmm. she had a parting in her dress. Um, the right, her right leg was pretty much entirely exposed with a small dagger, and the left leg was covered with her dress, and it had a sword there. I thought that was pretty cool. I was like, if I was the kind of person who had any talent at all with a pencil, I would want to sketch that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, it's a cool fashion. Uh, Definitely. And, and how she uses really, the, yeah. the skirt later on. And, but... Yeah, the symbology, and, and, and then what it implies is pretty cool, like, you know, business in the front party in the back you know you've got the long one on the left the dagger on the right i thought it was pretty cool it's the uh, the mullet of skirts <laughs> of skirt fashion yeah oh uh but let's move on to yennefer because yennefer she's the other like i think renfrey and yennefer provide sort of bookends as counterpoint characters to Geralt in this book sure and uh 
honestly, in a lot of ways, um, oh, I can't even really bring this up with you because you've only read part of the first book, but she part of the first book. I read the entirety of the first book. What are you talking about? Of Sabatha from the Lies of Locke Lamora. Oh, you mean the first book of a different series? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, but just the way it's set up where Yennefer is referred to again and again, and we don't see her, and we don't see her, and we don't see her. And then finally, in the last story, we see her, and, and we get to know her. And, and it reminded me a little bit of what Scott Lynch does with Sabatha in the Gentleman Bastard sequence, where we hear about her over and over and over again, and we never actually see her until much further in. See, so, as, as far as Scott Lynch goes, I, I, I want to say I, I got three, well, about three quarters, maybe even like 80% of the way through the first book, The Lies of Locke yeah, Mora. It, it, does Sabatha make an appearance this. in there, or is that like a spoiler to tell me at, like in any stretch? Uh, I will just say no, she's not in the first book. Okay. Okay. Um, Damn it. She's certainly mentioned a lot in the first. Yeah, that's book. why I want to know because that's like. Uh, but but yeah the. The interactions between Geralt and Yennefer and, this, uh, sort of thematically appropriate understanding that they reach again all in subtext like this is. Maybe a good jumping off for style points is how. Oh yeah, we how much got there, yeah. character conflict and 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 character uh, development is done through subtext in this. It's not shoved in your face. It's something that you really need to parse for yourself and figure out, you know, why, how does Geralt realize that she was a hunchback? Because all he says in the, in the moment is, like, he looked into her eyes and realized it. Well, you know, he, he also uh, part of our um, exposition earlier in this, I think, in this same chapter uh, is also from from Geralt of Rivia, and he mentions that most women who become sorceresses yep. start off as disfigured individuals. So, I mean, he could probably he probably already knew that she had some sort of um, physical ailment, disfiguration before becoming a uh, a sorceress, or just, at the very least, they're ugly women. Or I hadn't and, considered that, and then at yeah. the last moment he discovered which what which type of physical ailment it was. Yes. He, yeah. But so that's my point is mm -hmm. how it's not spelled out for you. You you have a piece here and a piece there to kind yes. of put together and like and and figure out why does he realize she is this specific hunchback, you know and. I, I liked how subtle a lot of that character work was, especially in earlier chapters, you know, like these scenes with Renfrey in um, uh, The Lesser Evil and some of the scenes in uh, the Kalanth the chapter and in The Edge of the World where we, even though we're in, ostensibly we're in Geralt's head, it's a, not a very close perspective, so we don't always get his his deepest thoughts and his his reasoning behind things we we see things from his perspective but we don't uh become privy to his thoughts yeah and it would be easy to pass him off as a simpleton or a brute if we didn't see him clearly divining the plans of those who think themselves better than him and clearly getting under the skins of those who see themselves above him it's his actions more than his thoughts that we have to go on to know that Geralt of Rivia is a clever son of a bitch. You don't see it in his thoughts, you see that part in his actions, but it's made very, very clear multiple times. Yeah. 
And then uh, sticking to this point that I, I was just touching on with point of view uh, and how this is a third person, uh, but not third person close. And I would almost argue that this is a third person omniscient narrator because we have several instances in this uh -huh. where it, it very much head hops, you know, where uh, especially the most glaring example of it was in Blaviken when Geralt kills Renfri's, you know, thugs. And in that scene, like without page breaks or anything, we move from sentence to sentence and suddenly we're in like the heads and getting the feelings of Renfri's soldiers as they're being killed by Geralt. Well, that, that, that point of view starts off that way. I don't think it switches mid-scene. It, it, there's a, there's oh, a clear we... break where suddenly it picks no. up from, um, what's the guy's name? No. The C. Sivril? No. So, in... Uh, so, I mean, it, it is... Okay. <laughs> How do I put this? So, yeah, it starts with Sivril. But we also get, in this scene, points of view from 15 and Tavik... And no horn, and like where See, I, we I don't get know if I'd consider them points of view though. But that's my point. It's third person omniscient. It okay. head hops. Okay. Okay. We, okay. We yeah. don't have a third person limited close perspective, but for most of the book, we're given the impression that that's what the the you know the narrator is is that it's a third person limited for Geralt, and then occasionally maybe we go into a new scene with another character, but. In, in this one, it starts with Sivril, and then we have things like, um, uh, oh, where, where was the one line, <laughs> where, like, you know, we're, we're in, in Sivril's uh, point of view, so to speak, and then suddenly we have Tavik's nerve failed, and then, uh, like... I see Tavik what you're saying. went first, you know, blah, blah, blah. Tavik felt a hard blow just above his hip, fell to his knees, and when he saw his hip, started screaming. It's like, it, it's, it's like, whoa, suddenly we're in Tavik's head. <laughs> so so would you call and this then, a, a third person not quite limited, perhaps? Yeah, like, like it's <laughs> in not, a weird way. It's not entirely omniscient, but it's not strictly third person limited. It's very strange. Uh <laughs> Makes me wonder so, about his inspirations, what authors that Sapkowski read as he was growing up. Well, if you find an answer in there somewhere. It, you pointing out when this book was published actually makes more sense. Because oh? one of the things that, uh, if you go back and read science fiction and fantasy before the 90s, this isn't a hard and fast rule, but the third person limited perspective was not as common as it is now where it seems everybody writes in this third person close, you know. And and that was in large part popularized by Robert Jordan, by The Wheel of Time. And in the fantasy genre especially, after, you know, The Wheel of Time saw all this success and authors started writing in the wake of it, they all aped his style and his n narrative perspective. And so, like, if you go earlier in time and you read some of the books that inspired Robert Jordan, if you read The Lord of the Rings or Dune or things like that, they do not use a third-person limited perspective. This book, The Last Wish, 
was written in Polish, one, I think probably before The Wheel of Time was translated into Polish, so I don't know if Sapkowski would have Shh, read that's it. That's a good point. And I... this was in 1993, just a couple of years after The Wheel of Time even started. And so this big boom of third-person limited perspective fantasy hadn't really happened yet. That's interesting. <laughs> huh. Well, yeah. more discussion for later. Um, let's so, see well, here. I mean, that's that's why I'm really glad you brought up the year this was published, because I was going to bring that up as like a, a sort of huh point, because I thought this was written about a decade after it actually was. But so it makes thought. much more sense to me now that it was written in the early 90s. Hmm. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I had I'd assumed that it had uh, a rich and, and long background. I didn't know if I would have said um, as early as it was either. Actually, I, I probably, if you had asked me, I would have I would have probably said the early two thousands, maybe maybe two thousand five, knowing that the first Witcher game came out in oh seven. Um, yeah. So, so so to think out to think on it that way though, like these books enjoyed fourteen years. Of, of life as nothing but a novel series or at least a collection of short stories depending on how they were originally <laughs> released and how you define them before CD Projekt Red came into the picture in the first place. Mm -hmm. 14 years. That's a long time. It's, it's, it hasn't been 14 years since, you know? Although, goddamn, we're close, aren't we? 2007 was 13 years ago, dude. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Okay. Anyway, let's continue on with our style discussion before I start getting bummed about how old we're getting. <laughs> yeah, so uh, what did you have on your list? I've got a lot on my list. Let's just go point by point back and forth. Sound good? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I want to talk right away about this wonderful simplicity in Sapkowski's prose. Um, and I, I'm sure a lot of his like fluidity was lost during the translation from the original Polish, but you still get this, you get an idea for the amount of description that he uses for these characters, a lot of these settings and these events, which in a lot of cases is usually not a lot of description. And in, in, in a way I found it refreshing. What about you? Uh, yeah, refreshing is a good word for it. Um, in a lot of ways, this book was not what I was expecting. Uh, I thought it was going to be something more in the vein of uh, a song of ice and fire, or uh, you know, some of the like Joe Abercrombie or Mark Lawrence, something a lot grittier, a lot more graphic, and uh, a lot more. Mm, I mean, for for simplicity's sake, a lot more grimdark. Okay. And uh, a lot more Kane, perhaps. <laughs> No, no, yeah. not not in any way, because Kane is sci-fi. But you know, I know what you meant. Well, but it is fantasy as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yes, in that vein. Um, and so, there was a lot less like graphic sex and violence in this than I was expecting. Really? See, there's more than uh, I was. Oh, see, like for for from everything I had heard, which admittedly was pretty limited. Uh, because I kind of purposely limited my engagement with this, knowing that I was eventually going to read it. Um, I had the impression that it was, like, just full of sex. Like, there was something more along the lines of, like, Conan the Barbarian levels of, of like, blood and guts and, and tits. Like, Got it. Conan the Barbarian is known for a lot of blood and guts and tits? Oh, yeah. Oh, man, I'm going to have to see how Robert Jordan approached that one. <laughs> 
Oh well, my goodness. Well, I mean, think about think about Warrior of the Altai, right? Yeah, that was oh yeah, I know some of the torture scenes in there were very <laughs> very disturbing. And and there were some pretty for Robert Jordan shockingly explicit sex scenes. Yeah. Yeah. I so, could, if yeah, he was he, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. But but so in this, sex was treated more like what we see in The Wheel of Time, for instance, where there are moments where we know Geralt has sex, but there's like a cutaway, right? You'll see like the lead up and maybe the the first steps of him fooling around with you know Iola or Renfrey or whatever. There's a lot more foreplay dialogue, though, and then and then cut to black, right? Uh, Jordan and, seems to treat uh, it as just like it's a spontaneous suddenly happens. He doesn't go into a lot of detail beforehand, but with Sapkowski, I mean, his characters are are pretty much talking about the fact that hey, we're gonna bang for like yeah, two three yeah. minutes before it even happens, which I think is a stark contrast to how Jordan approaches it, though. Yeah, but I'm talking about the. I was expecting like a Song of Ice and Fire blow by blow descriptions. Of oh, it. okay. No, fair. Okay, I see what you're saying. You're talking about like being in the moment and how much description you get of the deed. Yes. Got you. Okay. And and so, especially because what I'd heard about the TV show from a few people was like kind of complaining about like, oh, they're just trying to do Game of Thrones again. It's just all tits and gore. And I'm like, and I will say from just watching the first two episodes at least, that is not at all what I got. Wait till there the, was like wait till episode three. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like like they embellished Stregobor's tower a bit, where yeah. in the book there was one naked girl. And yeah. in the show they're they're all over the place. But you know, it was more like background stuff. So I don't know, because there wasn't this, like, loving description of graphic violence and sex, it was an easier read than I was expecting it to be, and I appreciated that. Um, as far as, like, Stregobor's Tower goes, though, um, that's that's actually a very interesting point that you bring up, the entrance to Stregobor's Tower, because I had actually um, made a specific note of that moment in my style points as well, because I was talking about how I was thinking there's, there's really not a lot of description in a lot of ways. Like There are times, like the beginning of The Lesser Evil, when I found the scenes to be moving too quickly. I noticed it more with mm. the introductions, the first few pages of each chapter. Um, but when he's meeting, for example, in The Lesser Evil, the Lesser Evil he's meeting Caldemain. That's how I pronounce that now. I'm just going to say Caldemain. The, the Alderman? Yeah. yeah, the Alderman, yeah. Um, there's, there's little to no description at the beginning of people, of the setting. It almost felt juvenile. In a, in a strange way. And I had to stop and I had to consider for a moment, like, maybe this is just because we're we're coming hot out of Crossroads of Twilight, the 10th Wheel of Time book. But I never thought I'd be concerned about having, not having enough description. But then Geralt reaches Stregobor's Meadow Paradise and we suddenly start getting a whole lot more description. You know, a, a little bit too much description, honestly, because in the show, Stregobor just says to Geralt, yeah, okay, yeah, this is all actually illusion, but it's advanced illusion. No. In, in the in the book, Stregobor is like, in fact, that girl is more than illusion. If you wanted to, you could even, and he's about to go on before Geralt's like, oh, okay, 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 I get it. I get it. Yeah. You can stop right there, dude. I, I can figure out what you're about to say. Yeah, he's like, it's illusion, but it has, like, substance to the illusion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and the narrative begins a lot like the video game, especially the third one. The Witcher's riding through town, and he's in a public place, and he's always facing testosterone-fueled challenges from ordinary men. They just never learn. Yeah, they just yeah. never learn. But it's also kind of satisfying to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I do want to talk about the magic system as well. I want okay. to talk about Sapkowski's, and I use this word very intentionally, his organic approach to this magic. Um, sure. Because as we see right away, a lot of Geralt's abilities as a witcher stem from his not only his knowledge, but these vials of mixtures that he has with roots and herbs and things that would normally be poisons to others, but apparently in the hands of the right mutant can have some spectacular effects. We have signs, we have shapes, basic shapes drawn with limbs and fingers that grant magical effects. What did you think of that magic system? Uh, I thought it made sense for the world that he's built. Uh, it felt esoteric hmm. and that okay. felt right. Uh, it, it reminded me in a lot of ways of how magic is treated in you know, some older stories like classics like like in Arthurian myth for instance uh, the focus on herbs and, and elixirs and, and whatnot uh, has this alchemical feel to it well there's a lot of alchemical feel definitely in the games let me tell you there yeah and and so I, I thought for the kind of story and for the style of writing that we were dealing with uh, this magic system made sense it would have felt out of place if we got a scene with Geralt at the beginning explaining the nitty-gritty details of how he does his magic uh, in the vein of, say, Zeth at the beginning of The Way of Kings. Uh, you know, okay. walking yeah, yeah. us through. Like, we don't get info dumps like that. Um, because we don't need info dumps in this world. This world feels lived in, and it feels expansive, but not overwhelming. Uh, one thing, like... I didn't really consider until the end of the book was that we don't have a map and right uh i didn't need a map i, f I didn't feel like i needed a map oh, we got I... enough information <laughs> about like where the pertinent places were that like i didn't i never had the desire to flip to the back of the book and be like oh where is Sintra versus uh you know how did Blavikin i consider or, this? or skellige or whatever you know, Skellige. So, Come on, sorry, Skellige. man. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to pronounce some of these things right for you before our, some of our fans go. Drew. <laughs> Skellige. Okay. Skellige. Skellige. Right. Yeah. Sorry. I'm sorry. I just spilled the water myself. I'm is, a little is that, I gotta stop that, pouring this whiskey. Go ahead. Is that actually like a canon pronunciation? I'm pretty sure. Okay. Um. Yeah. I never. I never felt that. Um. I never felt that need or that that problem. In, in since you mentioned it, I, I'm finding myself really surprised that I also never really, and hadn't even noticed that I never really had the urge to flip and check out geographical positioning on for context on these stories. I I hadn't even considered that as a possibility until you until you brought that up. Yeah, you're right. I I also didn't feel like I needed to know anything like that. Yeah, uh, and I want to make a d pretty direct comparison here to the Black Company which is another book that has uh, or another series that, that has sparser description. It is an older series. Uh, the Black Company was started in the 80s. And the world feels lived in. And it's described enough 
that there's no map in it, and I rarely felt like I needed a map. Interesting. Yeah, um, so on the heels of my previous kind of pseudo-complaining about the lack of description, to balance this, we suddenly have moments of uh, brilliance with this prose here. Like, I, like take for example... Um, okay, Renfrey showing up at the very end of the Lesser Evil to, to you know, Geralt's found her out. He knows what her plan is to force uh, Stregobor's hand to start slaughtering villagers so that he will leave his tower. Okay, she she walks into the scene and I quote: She says, "Shut up, Sivril!" Immediately, Sivril stopped laughing. Immediately, Geralt wasn't surprised. There was something very strange in Renfrey's voice. Something associated with the red reflection of fire on blades, the wailing of people murdered, the whinnying of horses, and the smell of blood. I wrote, I stopped and wrote down. I was like, "Where the hell did that come from?" <laughs> like that, that was that was ominous and explosive and beautiful. And I was like, "I want more of this going forward." What'd you think? Like, like, did, did were there moments of prose where you stopped and you went, "Wow, that was actually really, really excellently written," and it kind of feels almost out of place for it. So, I never had anything stop me in my tracks like that. Uh, okay. Maybe I've just become a little inured to that. Like, I, the kind of stuff that stops me in my tracks now, you know, that's when I'm reading Gene Wolfe or something. <laughs> about, where, where guys, okay, okay, I see guys, what you're like, saying. One of the absolute masters of the written right. word. Um, but I did notice in this how. And perhaps this is a, a relic of the translation, but I did notice how there were occasional and intermittent sentences that were much more flowery than the standard kind of stock prose. Okay, okay. Uh, there were points where things felt very... Um, oh, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for is... Uh, kind of staccato they're they're short terse sentences very plain language and then suddenly you would have something much more flowery like the quote you just brought up and you're like oh okay all right that was that was well written and and it makes me you know wish i could read polish so i could read the original and see if this is simply a matter of translation mm. or if sapkowski actually wrote it this way Oh, it would be so confusing to try to read in Polish. That is such a difficult language to, to oh, learn, yeah, it's I hear. Crazy. Yeah. It's beautiful, though. And you should also, on the subject, since before we get off of the subject, I watched a Netflix interview between, uh, oh, I think, oh, God, I'm going to, I forget her name, Lauren Hisrick, I believe, the showrunner for the HBO. The HBO. Oh, my God, the Netflix show, not HBO. <laughs> Big no-no there. And uh, between her and Andrzej Sapkowski, and you should hear this guy's polish accent it's the most endearing awesome jolly accent uh that i've ever heard in my life okay. yeah he, he he looks like george r. r martin in a strange way but his accent is so flowery and and lilting and it's just like it, it makes i could listen to that gentleman speak all day long nice polish sounds uh, like a like, like 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 an awesome language sure complicated yeah so uh uh what else do you have as far as style yes uh, as far as style goes, uh, let's see here. Oh, uh, Sapkowski uh, has a proven self-awareness and a remarkable ability to play with reader expectation. 
Um, and, and so far as I can, I can tell, he really only showed that off in one instance. With the beginning of A Question of Price, the, the fourth chapter, the fourth story, mm-hmm. it starts off with the words, and I quote again, The Witcher had a knife at his throat. He was wallowing yeah, yeah. in a wooden tub, brimful of soap buds, head thrown back against its slippery rim. The bitter taste of soap lingered in his mouth as the knife, blunt as a doorknob, and at that point I stopped and went, what? You know, scraped his Adam's apple painfully and moved toward his chin with a grating sound. The barber, and then I realized what was happening there, and I went, oh my god, what a cheeky move. I don't know yeah. why I fell for that so hard, or why I found it so hilarious in retrospect simple it's just a simple trick but with the dark tone of this book it had such a more profound effect on me and i found it all the more cool for it yeah uh that particular moment did stand out to me too and and there were so many moments in that story in particular where there's this banter going on at the table and you're just sort of waiting for the other shoe to fall yeah. You know, like, you're like, okay, what, what's going to happen here? Where Where is this going? You know, what's what's the deal? And then finally, we we have it play out. Um, but, but, yeah, I, I, I did appreciate that particular scene that you quoted. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a really cool moment. Um, and uh, before we continue, though, um, I wanted to ask what you thought of the scene directly before that. I'm speaking about that sort of, I don't know what to call it. You probably There's probably a name for it, and you having uh, the, the academic degree, you might actually be able to tell me. If not, also tell me. There's this scene right before that where we get this almost monologue about his past from Geralt, where he's talking to Iola, I believe it is. Um, but it's just... Where we, we, it's, it's the... A conversation, but it's a one-way conversation. Talking. Yeah, it's just a yeah, one-way conversation yeah, yeah. from Geralt. Like, what is that? Is there a name for this? So I found it really mm. intriguing. I don't know if there is. I mean, I would call it a conversation, but it's more like you're overhearing a. It's phone an address conversation. Yeah, you it's... you only have one side of it, and you have to fill in the gaps yourself. And I've seen this used to great effect in other stories, and I actually really, really like this. Because it's something that invites the reader to be more uh, active, engaging with the text. Because you have to fill in the gaps. You know, we we have um, we have it happen a little bit in Kane, if you remember, when we go into those. I was going to say person, with with uh, right? No, but specifically like the second person point of view. Oh, as the le- the end of the chapters in Blade of Taishal, as it kind of pulls out into this. No, 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 no. That that's like the myth thing. I'm talking about like when we have a, a second person voice saying, "You do this. I love oh, you." Yeah. Like that, and and there is, you know, without going into spoilers, um, there are questions in that one-sided conversation talking to you, and by using the second person there, it invites you as the reader to engage with this conversation, even though in the text. The you is your main character, Kane. You know, so it it is definitely a literary device. I don't have a 
name for it off the top of my head, though it would not surprise me if there I was, was one. I was just hoping you would bring up Stover, because I, I it definitely reminded me of some of these scenes in, in, in Blade of Taisho. I think I want to say uh, actually Kane's Law or, or Kane Black Knight. Mm-hmm. Again, not going into any spoilers for, for the, yeah. you know, the acts of Kane, but these moments where we get this pulling out of perspective and where the narrator just seems to be addressing um, a nebulous figure that doesn't have an identity. Um, yes. And, and this, this, this conversation that, I almost said Kane that Geralt has with Iola, I mean, like, he, it's clearly we're only hearing the one side of the conversation, but there is also very clearly somebody else participating in the conversation because he stops his diatribe at certain spots and responds to an unheard question and then continues. Yes. So, I, I mean, I found it really, really esoteric in a way. I like the word that you used earlier. But <laughs> I also don't have the, the degree to be able to tell, like, you know, is this as awesome as it just reads, as it appears to be? Or am I just like a magpie with something shiny going, ooh, you know? No, I think it's a very clever device. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Um, and the, the last style point that I have to discuss here, and I know <laughs> certain diehard fans of the series might be hearing me at this point going, oh my god, stop bringing up the game, stop bringing up the show, we're here to talk about the book. But I think it's so culturally relevant right now that I do want to draw this last line, this parallel there. There's a lot of dialogue in the show that was lifted directly from the scenes in the books. Uh, yes, I noticed that. And I, you you would notice that, seeing as how you just watched the first and second episodes in the past few days, I assume. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that Geralt's conversation with Stregobor, the, the, the entire plot involving the past eclipse, the children of Lilith, Renfri, the princess turned vagabond, turned assassin leader, like these were all preserved almost immaculately. And there's a uh, few other stories in this book where it was done very faithfully by Netflix. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it truncated a little bit. Like, they excised everything about the seven gnomes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you yeah. Know, but but they did retain whole conversations uh, word for word from the book. And I love that it turns out they, they maintained Geralt's diatribe about having to choose between a lesser evil and that being the theme yes. of this entire story. My opi- Once I read that, my opinion of the showrunners went way up after that. Mm-hmm. And I'm now more excited for season two of the show than I previously was. Because the show I found to be, all right, it was a seven, eight out of ten. I'll probably watch the rest. The game was, it changed my life. I will dedicate an entire <laughs> other episode later to how amazing of a game it is. But now that I have context and now that I know how faithful they were to the the first novel with the Netflix adaptation. I'm more excited for future installments of it. Okay. Yeah. So that wraps up my uh, style discussion there. So I have one more uh, bit that I just wanted to touch on. And that was, uh, I appreciated how Sapkowski took a real world fairy tales and applied them. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like, Renfrey is clearly a uh, Snow White analog. Where her, she has the evil stepmother who has a mirror on the wall. And she teams up with seven gnomes. You know, and then <laughs> and there are little things like that strewn throughout this. Like, uh, Rumpelstelt is, is mentioned at one point. You know, like, so you have 
names and fairy tales twisted slightly, but still there enough to provide it, a familiar touchstone you know, for readers. It, it makes you wonder what these fairy tales are that these Polish children are growing up and, lis and, and listening to, because this could be, for all we know, an exact translation of those, and they would just have a common root. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so... Uh, but that was my last uh, style point. So I just wanted to, you know, see if you had any final thoughts about the first book in, in general. I do. I have one miscellaneous impression, only one for the first time, and then I have just a small little conclusive piece here. Um, okay. Oh, no, sorry. I actually already got through my miscellaneous thought, and that was what made Geralt so special among witchers. Pardon me. I just oh, have a one yeah, conclusive okay. thought here. I wanted to say, as, as far as reviewing this book goes, and my expectations and what I got out of reading this book, walking away from it. I will say Sapkowski's writing is definitely different in some way that I really couldn't define at this point. It's both good and it is bad. Um, his, his world is rich, his main character delivers consistently, and his prose has occasional moments of pure gold. But he's not very consistent as a writer. I found his his pace is a little all over the place. His, his but that could also have a lot to do with the fact that this is just an amalgamation of short stories. Really, um, yes. I want to recognize the fact of that. Um, but his level of detail on a scene by scene basis is kind of what sticks out to me the most. It varies wildly. It almost feels to me like Andrei Sapkowski learned to write by writing the first Witcher book. Because uh, by the end, he was absolutely nailing every single story. And I can only imagine that the rest of the Witcher books to follow will continue this trend. Um, and I'd also like to give another thanks to Danny, our official Inking Out Loud artist, who supports us yeah. with her talent and recommended that we dive into this series. So thank you, Danny. It was definitely worth a good discussion. Yeah. Yeah, and, and for me... This was not the book I was expecting it to be. And I was pleasantly surprised by that. I liked it more than I thought I would. Uh, I wouldn't say I loved this book. I'm not rabid to, you know, dive straight into the second book as I have been with other series in the past. Fair enough. But it is something that is going to remain on my radar. I intend to read on. Um, you know, like I, I would probably give this book uh, a pretty solid 3.5 out of 5, maybe 3.75. It's, it's not, it's not a top tier book, but it was fun. It was more fun than I expected it to be. Uh, it was intriguing enough to keep me reading. Uh, I, I didn't often have moments where I disengaged with the text and just wanted to put the book down or anything. So, uh, you know, that was, that was nice. And, and I, I liked having a new, um, easily digestible book to, to read, especially in the middle of the wheel of time, you know, where we're now two thirds of the way through that series. And we've been reading it for what the last eight, nine months having these little breathers in interspersed throughout the wheel of time is very nice. Yeah, it definitely was <clears throat> a, a nice breather. It was, and it gave me more context and appreciation for the games and the show that I will continue to love going forward. So it's, it's, mm -hmm. I'm glad that we had the chance to cover this. So yeah. shall we jump into the final draft? 
I think we shall. What are you okay. drinking? I'll give us a start. So I've been dipping my toe into the waters of the keto diet on and off for a few months now. I'm pretty sure I've mentioned that in an earlier yeah. podcast. Um, I'll say it again. I'm trying to be a bit wiser about my beer intake lately. And I've learned that if one wants to limit their carbohydrate intake, then dark liquor is the way to go. If one needs to drink in the first place, obviously. So with the perfect <laughs> excuse to bring another liquor on the podcast... I'm bringing with me a rye whiskey that I'm nice. 95% certain I haven't featured before. I'm pretty sure I haven't featured before, but I do drink it all the time. So there's a, there's the distinct chance that I have brought it, drank an undue amount of it, and then forgotten about it. Um, so this okay. is a, this is a Crown Royal whiskey, which is as uh -huh. as a brand I'm pretty sure I know is common up here. I'm pretty sure it's common down oh, there as well. Oh, it's very common. Yeah. Yeah. But a couple of years ago, they debuted this variant on their original with their rye whiskey, simply called Northern Harvest Rye. And it's got a little more of a kick than their usual blend. It's a 45% solid. It's it's 90 proof. Um, but it's really got this nice spicy sweet finish that I really appreciate. And that's the reason I drink it so often. After doing some research for this particular final draft entry, um, I can see that they, they're they boasting spiced vanilla, uh, spiced vanilla, pardon me, um, they're also boasting oak and butterscotch, so it's it's a little more expensive of whiskey. The butterscotch and the vanilla I can definitely detect in there, but it's all together. I mean, it's worth it. I've had the original Crown Blend enough times that it's lost its magic, but this Crown yeah, yeah. Royal, like this Northern Harvest Rye, it continues to bring the game, and I find myself satisfied with it every time. I'm giving it a nine out of ten as far as whiskeys go. Anybody who's listened to enough of our episodes will know that I am primarily a whiskey drinker. Whiskey is my area of specialty. I love my whiskey. And as mm -hmm. a side note, I will I guess I'll note that this is the first Canadian whiskey to win the World Whiskey of the Year for Jim Murray's annual Whiskey Bible for 2016. So, I mean, as far as, you know, dollar for quality, you can't go wrong. Crown Royal, Northern Harvest Rye. Awesome Very whiskey. Nice. nice rye. Yeah, I, I've i only had, I think, maybe one or two rye whiskeys in my life. But I have, uh, especially in the last year or so, had many rye whiskey barrel aged beers okay and yeah yeah i actually I brought have, one on myself too <laughs> i have yeah. developed a quite a, an appreciation for that it does impart a very specific kind of spicy and sweetness you know a uh, sweet profile um i i don't think i've brought any rye rye ba stuff on for the podcast maybe one but uh, I, I have several in, in my cellar, and I like them quite a lot. Uh, and I, in fact, I do have one rye whiskey barrel-aged uh, Imperial Stout that I will bring on at some point. It just It's a very, very special beer. It was a one-per-person, 200-bottle uh, release. Like, they sold out immediately. <laughs> I can't believe you get... You can get so much into these into these beer yeah. releases. Like, like, this is a limited like, like limited release beer. Right? If I wanted to like sell that on the secondary market, I could sell it for like a hundred and ten to hundred and twenty dollars. I can't believe like, that. God, <laughs> and how long does it sit around? You can just let it sit around forever. Like, is it? In oh a bottle? yeah, those is it things are iron ironclad. You you oh. can you can age that for five six years. So like, you have it in a in a in a bottle? 
Yeah, it's bottled. And you can just keep it for five, six years? Oh, yeah. Wouldn't that leave, like, a rust ring around the lip, though? No. No? Huh. Okay. <laughs> anyway, sorry, yeah, go ahead. But but anyway... Uh, what did you bring for today, though? That's what I want to Yeah. Do. So, I brought a beer from True Brewing Company, which... Uh, you will recognize that name. I've brought a few of their beers on. Um, I think I remember started... stopping myself yeah. from making a stupid pun with truing. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. They, uh, <laughs> they've they started distributing a lot more recently, and I'm happy with it because they're one of my favorite Colorado breweries. They do a lot of really good kind of spontaneous fermentation work, like saisons and wild ales and whatnot. And that is the style of this beer as well. This is... Uh, a 5.7%. They describe it as a high plains ale, uh, but it is a golden ale fermented in oak with spontaneous microbes. So basically, uh, you know, it, instead of using their own like lab-grown uh, strain, yeast strain, they uh, they inoculate it naturally, like open air, with whatever microbes are in the air. That sounds probably, dangerous, and like it would not uh, pass a simple fucking exp- inspection by like a, some sort of government agency. But it also sounds oh no, authentic a, and delicious. Don't get me very, wrong. Yeah, age-old um, uh, brewing method. Uh, you know, the Belgians, the French, the Germans—they all did this. Uh, where, you know, th- this is how you get sour beers and funky beers—is with ah. yeast strains. And um, and and so that's probably why they called it a high plains ale. They probably had some high plains terroir that they, you know. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it, it, this is super good. It it is quite tart. Um, I'll tell you when I bought the beer, you know, just based on the name, and I saw high plains ale, I was expecting some pretty standard like golden ale, straightforward. Yep, grainy yep, yep. kind of thing. Was not expecting it to be sour like this, um, but pleasantly surprised. And so this beer is uh, is my ode to Stregobor's uh, fears and to Renfrey, my favorite character, who Rip. was pro- prophesied to you know That's have like... the valleys run red with the blood of humanity <laughs> and all of this. And this beer is called World's Blood. Oh, good call. Good call. I like that. Yeah, no, rest in peace, Renfrey. She was not given the chance she deserves, and I really wish that we had gotten more out of her and or hope that we will get more out of her going forward. Uh, yeah. One yeah. way or another. <laughs> One way or another. Good uh, good entry there, my man. Yeah, so I believe that takes us to the end of our episode. This has been episode 56 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Thank on cease. Next up on episode 57, we will be going back to the Wheel of Time. We are going into book 11, Knife of Dreams, and we will be reading the first 19 chapters that will take us up through Vows, which for anybody who's read the book before, uh, it is a classic chapter that I'm very excited to discuss. So uh, yeah, if you want to get early access to that episode, if you want to support us uh, for the podcast, check us out on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. Um, yeah, uh, we're, we're able to keep doing this week in and week out because of your support, and we appreciate everybody who's already doing that, and if you're not, uh, please consider it. 
As always, I am your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Hey. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>